not spiritual success. Here's why I had her throw that up there uh, right off the bat uh, with a message. That's because this describes much of the life of Solomon, doesn't it? He, he uh, found himself in the presence of God and God gave him, just backed up the truck and just dumped wisdom all over this boy. And from the time he was a young king, uh, he had more wisdom, the Bible says, than anybody else ever had. He was full of wisdom and had great wisdom, but while the wisdom never left him, the godliness sure did. The godliness sure did. And he got to the end of his life and he would admit that. We're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes as he's writing this at the end of his life and he's looking back over his life with a lot of regrets. And he is saying to us through this book that I had wisdom, but a lot of the times I did not have godliness. And wisdom minus godliness, while it equaled for me earthly success, boy, it sure didn't equal spiritual success. Short it and equal spiritual success. There are a lot of people in life uh, that you can go to and they will give you good business advice. Uh, they will give you good marriage advice. They will give you good parenting advice. They will give you good relational advice. But they do not know what spiritual success is. And you say, well, pastor, how can that be? Uh, various people might can lead you down a path to success in one area while they themselves are not walking with the Lord and their lives are falling apart. I can't tell you how many times I've uh, heard of someone writing a New York Times bestseller book on marriage only to find out that they're in their third marriage. What happened? The contents of the book contain all the truths you needed to have a happy marriage. Oh, but they themselves had the wisdom, but they weren't practicing it. The next slide there says this, wisdom plus godliness equals earthly and spiritual success. Wisdom plus godliness equals uh, earthly and spiritual success. When you take wisdom that God gives you, and you combine that with a walk with God, boy, not only do you see the earthly success, but you see the spiritual success. You see great success in, 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 your, in, in your spiritual life. And I've got to tell you, that's what I want. I've made this quote, I've given this quote here uh, several times since I've been pastor. But boy, it, it fits in perfect right here. And it's this, the journey to get wisdom is just as important as the wisdom you get. The journey... You go down to get wisdom is just as important as, uh, as, the, as the wisdom you get. What is the journey to get wisdom? Well, what's James 1.5 tell us? It tells us, um, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth all men liberally and abradeth not. Uh, you walk with God to get wisdom. And that walk with God is just as important as the wisdom that you get. God wants you to walk with Him. Listen, uh, for Solomon, it worked a little bit different, I believe, than it works for us. God gave Solomon the entire bread factory of, of wisdom and said, here it is all at once, all the wisdom you'll ever need is right here. i got to say, I'm glad that God does not give me that wisdom that way. I wake up every morning and some of the first words out of my mouth are, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to encounter today. Give me your wisdom so I know how to handle things the way that you would handle. And God gives me just enough wisdom to get through the day. Then I wake up the next morning and I pray the same prayer. Boy, there are times I stop and pray that prayer during the day. God wants you to walk with Him. And when you add together that wisdom and that godliness, boy, you get earthly and spiritual success. So tonight, we're going to take the book of Ecclesiastes, written by the hand of King Solomon the, uh, at the end of his life. And we're going to look at um, uh, several different aspects of Solomon tonight. I believe I've got, let me see here, 
I've got uh, six points for us to cover and several uh, sub-points, so let's jump right in. Point number one tonight is this, Solomon's position. Solomon's position. Turn back with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse number 1. We see there, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we're looking at his position. Letter A, notice his heritage, his heritage. Who was his father? His father was a king. His father was not just any king. His father was King David, one of uh, Israel's greatest kings, if not Israel's greatest kings. And while uh, David had his shortcomings and his bumps and his warts and his bruises like we all do, David was a man that described as being after God's own heart. And Solomon was raised uh, uh, around David's feet, growing up in David's home and, and having David train him. i got to say that David really blew it with a lot of his children. Really blew it with a lot of his children. He, he blew it with Amnon and he blew it with Tamar and he blew it with Absalom. But after all that, little Solomon came around through the bowels of Bathsheba, and I believe that maybe David learned the way many of us learn. He learned through the school of hard knocks. He made a lot of mistakes, and he said, I'm going to really invest in this young man. And he raised a fine young man in Solomon. So uh, notice there his heritage. I'd have to say this evening, just quickly on this, is that if you have a godly heritage, do not take that for granted. If your parents took you to church and tried to teach you to do what was right, boy, be thankful for that. Be thankful for that. Uh, listen, your parents weren't everything that they probably should have been. Nobody is ever anything they ought to be. But good night, your parents took the time to invest in you and love on you and get you to church. You ought to thank God for that. And you say tonight, I didn't have a mom or dad uh, to raise me in church. Well, uh, are you raising your family in church? Have you raised your family in church? Then you know what you're doing is you're beginning a godly heritage, and you make sure you pass that down. i got to tell you that I always want to make coming to uh, church for my children something they look forward to and excited, not where I'm dragging them uh, by their hair, uh, proverbially, to try to get them there. So uh, notice there that Solomon, when he's in opening the book and he's introducing himself, he calls himself the son of David, who was the king in Jerusalem. Now, Solomon on his own right was his own king and could have been lifted up in his own pride and said, I am Solomon, king of Israel. No, but he said, I am Solomon, David's son, king in Jerusalem. Letter B, notice his homiletics. His homiletics. You say, Pastor, that's a big word. What's that mean? Well, homiletics is a uh, uh, the art of preaching. He called himself there the words of the preacher. The preacher. Solomon is letting us know right off the bat, I am writing this to you as a moral authority. I am writing this to you as a preacher. A preacher. Everybody's looking around. Is everything okay? Okay, making sure I didn't lose anybody there. Okay, uh, uh, when that happens, I'm worried that the screen's off or something's not right there. So, uh, But uh, he was the preacher. He was saying, look, at the end of my life, uh, I have learned some things. I'm going to preach you a sermon. I'm going to share some things with you. And so we see here the position that Solomon was preaching from. Number two, notice Solomon's prosperity. Solomon's prosperity. Turn back with me, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter number 10. 1 Kings chapter number 10, you have 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and then 2 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 10, and look with me at verse number 14. And here we, uh, we're, we're going to spend most of the night in um, 
Ecclesiastes, but to, to make one point for you here um, and help kind of lay the, the groundwork of the sermon, you have to understand just how loaded that uh, Solomon was. First Kings chapter 10, the Bible tells us there in verse number 14, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred three score and six talents of gold. So uh, Solomon's annual income in gold alone was six hundred sixty-six talents. Uh, if, if you multiply the value of gold into U.S. dollars, uh, and I, granted the, the, the cost of gold uh, fluctuates, but uh, given an average number there, uh, the, his annual income uh, just in gold alone would have been four hundred thirty-nine million dollars. $439 million in gold alone. Now, over 40 years of being king, that is an accumulation of $17.5 billion U.S. dollars. And again, he, he also drew in all kinds of other precious metals uh, that were uh, uh, very valuable and spices. And you may remember that the Queen of Sheba came to visit him and the Queen of Sheba said, boy, I, I had to come see this place for myself. I had to come see it for myself because I just couldn't believe it. And now that I have laid my eyes on it, the half wasn't told me. Solomon, he was, he was very, very, very financially well off. Very wealthy. Maybe the wealthiest man ever to live. There's no way to really know that. But I'll say this. His wealth uh, blows away the richest man. It blows away the Warren Buffetts and the Bill Gates of our days. Blows them away. And he, he had more money uh, uh, in his, uh, probably in his pocket, walking around as changes most of those men would have in their bank accounts. So Solomon's prosperity. Number three, let's look at Solomon's pleasures. Solomon's pleasures. Now, what did Solomon do with all that money? Look with me at chapter 2 there. Chapter 2 and uh, in verse 1. Letter A, we see mirth. Mirth. It says there in verse 1, I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? What doeth it? What was the first thing that uh, Solomon mentions that he took that money and spent it on? Well, he spent it on entertainment. He spent it on laughter. He, he must have, they obviously didn't have TV back then, but he must have spent it to have people come in and make him laugh and entertain him. Uh, he spent that on mirth. Letter B, notice he spent that on material possessions. Look down with me at chapter 2 and verse 4. Chapter 2 and verse 4, the Bible says, I made me great works. I builded the houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water uh, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. Look down at verse 8. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure. So he was a collector of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delight of the sons of men as musical instruments uh, and all and uh, and that of all sorts. So we see here that uh, he was all about gathering material goods. He built houses galore. He built uh, he built he he uh, there it says there that he planted gardens and orchards and in them he had every type of exotic tree there was. The other day we uh, I stopped over here at Booth Memorial Park. I, I walked through there regularly, but was just noticing uh, uh, there with a friend all the various types of roses that are there. 
And uh, I don't know the answer to this. If you know, you can share this with me later. I'm wondering if they didn't collect different types of rose buds, rose bushes from all over the world to put there in that garden. It's, it's a very beautiful uh, uh, rose garden, but that wouldn't have held a candle to what Solomon had. He had all the different flowers. He had all the different fruit trees uh, of every sort, and, uh, and 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 he gathered those things to him. But that wasn't it. It wasn't just it wasn't just houses. It wasn't just uh, vineyards. It wasn't just orchards and gardens. He also had pools of water put around. You walked on this guy's estate, and he had a pool of water that was put there and kept purified just to water a certain type of tree to get the best kind of fruit possible. Uh, he didn't just do that. He gathered to himself musical instruments and, and then he gathered to himself treasures that were peculiar. Why? Because he was a collector of items. Letter C. Notice men servants and maidens. Men servants and maidens. What did Solomon do with all this money? What did Solomon do uh, uh, with all of uh, uh, in order to pleasure himself? Well, He paid people just to stand in his house and sing for him. How rich would you have to be to be able to afford your own choir? Pretty filthy rich. And their occupation was to sing for him when he wanted. That was it. Men servants and and maiden uh, servants who would come in and men singers and women singers and all they did was come in and they would play uh, he had his own band, he had his own orchestra, and he had his own choir, and uh, and they would uh, they would sing uh, at the snap of his finger whenever he wanted. In letter D, notice money, money. The very end of verse eight there says, uh, or rather, I gathered me also silver and gold, silver and gold. And so he he spent his life uh, collecting. And you say, well, pastor, you already covered the money thing. Let me just throw, let me just add this in here as well, because I think that in a, the materialistic money-minded age we live in, this can't be preached on enough. There are some people that get a pleasure out of just having more money. Having more money. You, you have that benchmark you're trying to get your bank account to. You know, when you're young, it's $10,000. Then you get it to $10,000 and you want to see it climb the 25000 line. And then you want to see it climb the 50000 line. And then you want to see it climb the hundred thousand line and some of you are thinking i'd like to just have a thousand dollars in the bank (laughs) but there are those who just work to to get it up higher and higher and the truth is you know if god has blessed you with wealth praise the lord i'm not here to preach against those that have wealth listen money is needed to move the work of the lord forward and and uh, money is the 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 end to a a mean to an ends rather uh, but money ought not be worshipped money ought not be worshipped there are people like Solomon who they get a happiness and a joy out of checking their bank account. Boy, they'll open that up on their, on their um, computer or on their phone or they'll get that statement in the mail and they'll open it up and it puts a big smile on their face to see that there's X amount of dollars in the bank. And the higher that climbs, more the more joyous or rather the more happy they are. Joy is not brought about by money. But that was where Solomon was. He he loved maybe going in and open up the door and looking in and there being a room full of gold. Walking down the hall and open up another door and there was a room full of silver. Walking down the hope and open another door and he walked in and all his peculiar treasures were lined up around the room that he was working to collect Solomon's pleasures. Notice number four, and this very appropriately falls on the heels of number three, Solomon's pain. 
Solomon's pain. Those in life that put an emphasis on pleasure soon find that it is like eating cotton candy as a steady diet. It rots out your teeth and it makes you sick. It only is good for so long. Look at verse 17. Now you might think, well, Pastor, nowhere in nowhere that we've read so far does it say these were bad things. Solomon here is laying out his pleasure credentials, if you will, and on the back end of laying this out, look at verse 17. He says this, Therefore I hated life. Well, that's not what you're expecting to see. You had a choir that sang at the snap of a finger. You had rooms of silver and gold. You were worth $17.5 billion in gold alone at the end of your life. You hated life. Verse 17, Therefore I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that should be after me. And uh, who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool, yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This also was vanity. Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. What did he say? He said, I looked at everything I had and I realized that I hated myself. Now, why would you hate yourself after you gather all these things? He said this, he said, I hated it because I realized I couldn't take it with me. I was going to take it with me. I have never seen a hitch on the back of a Hertz. Never seen one. Heard of a guy one time that uh, he had uh, gold-plated his Rolls Royce. And he, his, in his will, he asked that he be put behind the wheel of his Rolls Royce and that be his casket. And they lowered this gold-plated Rolls Royce down in the ground and they covered it with dirt. The truth is, his dead carcass rotted in there, but he didn't get to take it with him. Didn't get to take it with him. Letter A, notice, it is vanity. It is vanity. Now, while, while money and things provide comfort to us, and again, while money is necessary to pay bills, and uh, 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 there are some things in life that we must have, and then there are things in life that we even uh, enjoy, they ought not be things that, uh, that control us or that we have to live for. They have to live for. Um, the question isn't, uh, do, do you control your money? The question is, does your money control you? That's the question. And for Solomon, it got to a place where his money controlled him. He was drunk on all the pleasures that came with money. It was the party life. It was the, it was the must-have. And he got down to the end of his life, and he looked back at all of the waste of his life, uh, on all, of all the money and all the things he bought, and what did he, how did he describe it? He described it as vanity. What does that word vanity mean? It means empty. It means... It means worthless, vanity. It was vain. You take God's name in vain. You're taking it uh, in an empty way. And Solomon looked back at the end of his life and he said, Good night, I have more houses than anybody I know. i got more shekels in the bank than anybody I know. I've got pools of water. I've got trees, gardens, orchards, vineyards. It's empty. It has no value to it. 
Not only did he say it was vanity, but he took it a step further. He said it is vexation. Vexation, letter B. It is vexation. Now, what does vexation mean? It means irritation. It means depression. It means anxiety. Anxiety. Don't raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you here have struggled with depression or anxiety. He said this about all of the things that he had gathered and the way he had spent his life. He said, it just flat out made me depressed. He said, I laid in bed at night anxious. Well, let's look at some verses here. Chapter 1, verse 14. Look there with me. Chapter 1, verse 14. It says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit, this idea of irritation or depression or anxiety of spirit. Uh, Look with me at uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Then I looked on the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. uh, And there was no profit under the sun. Again, verse 17. uh, Therefore, I hated life because... The work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Look down at chapter 2, verse 26. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. Then also I saw that it was from the hand of God. I'm sorry, verse 26. For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up, uh, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Turn over to chapter 4 and verse number 4. Again, I considered all travail and every uh, right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. That is also vanity and vexation of spirit. All the travail, all that hard work, everything that I earned that made my neighbor envy me. It's vexation of spirit. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. There is no end of all the people, even of all that hath been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. One more, look at chapter 6 and verse 9. Chapter 6 and verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Let me just tell you, somebody who is working so hard to gather, 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 have, 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 build their empire, build their name, you know what you end up becoming? You end up becoming centric. Stay with me here. Centric. You revolve around yourself. You know what I found? I have found that the more time you spend revolving around you, the more depressed you are. The more time you spend revolving your life around others and God, boy, the happier you are. You know what Solomon spent many, many years of his life doing? Building houses for himself. Planting orchards for himself. Having singers for himself. And he found himself to be depressed and empty. Again, uh, the sermon tonight is not meant to belittle or put down those who can make money in large amounts. If God's given you that opportunity, my friend, go for it. But let me just make sure I put this out there for you. The goal in life is not to make money for you. 
The goal in life is not to be centric. The goal in mind is you're making that money as you're gathering those things is, Lord, how can I use it to be a blessing to others? To others. Solomon's pain. He looked at everything he had. All the wealth that he had gathered and he said, it's vanity. It's vexation. Number five, notice Solomon's perspective. Look with me at chapter 1 and verse 11. It says, there is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. Well, that's a, that's a very deep verse. Let me read it again. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. Turn over to chapter 2 and verse 16. Look, look over there with me. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? Now that doesn't mean that a wise man is a fool. That's not what that's saying. It's saying that when we get several hundred years out, no one's going to know whether you're a wise man or a fool. No one's going to even remember who you were. Well, that's depressing. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. The Bible says there, Now built on the thought of what we just read, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves through break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Here's the, here's the point I'm trying to make here. There's going to come a day in time where you are nothing more than dust in the earth, and nobody remembers your name. My children asked me the other day, right down the road, my children asked me, what was your grandfather's name? I said, well, it was uh, uh, Jim Atkins. Tell us some things about your grandfather. And I listed a few things. And they said, they, they asked me, what was your great-grandfather's name? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I'm curious to know, how many of you know the names of your great-grandparents? Anybody? A few of you. Maybe 10% of the crowd. If I, had to, if I gave you a piece of paper and I asked you to write out Ten things about their life. Could you do it? Could you do it? Maybe a couple of you could. Can I tell you something about Solomon? Solomon was really, really wealthy. But you know, that's not why we remember him. That's not why we're talking about him tonight. The only reason why we're talking about Solomon is because God chose to put him in the Bible. Had God not chosen to have Solomon part of the Bible, you wouldn't even know who he was. It doesn't matter that he was worth several hundred billion dollars. He wouldn't even be a blip on the radar of your life. One day, you're going to take your last breath and some preacher is going to stand over you and preach your funeral. And everyone's going to gather. They're going to cry, hopefully. Hopefully because they miss you, not cry because they're glad you're gone, amen? 
They're going to get in the car. They're going to ride out to the out to the graveside, and some preacher's going to lie about how good you were. I'm being facetious. And then everyone's going to come back to the church. And they're going to have fried chicken and potato salad. They're going to have some kind words they'll say over you. You know, get in the car and they'll ride off and. Those who are closest to you will think about you from time to time. But their children won't. And their children won't. Their grandchildren won't. Their great-grandchildren won't. heard a guy say one time, he said, I only know one thing about my great-grandfather. There's a book I was reading on leadership. He said, the only thing I know is that he owned a hammer. And I said, what? He said, uh, in the book it said, I... I was digging through some artifacts, some things some, uh, in my dad's uh, attic when he passed away, and I only found one item that his dad had left him, and it was a hammer, that, uh, or his granddad had left him, it was a hammer that had his name on it. The only thing I know about my great-granddad is that he owned a hammer. Now, I pray that you leave a legacy that's remembered a little longer than that. I think that's what we all want. I think that's what we all fight for, but whether it's your great-grandchildren that forget you, your great-great-grandchildren, or your great-great-great-grandchildren, one day you will be forgotten. And how much money you had won't matter. And what kind of car you drove won't matter. And how big the square footage of your house was isn't going to matter. And whether or not you were an employee or an employer, you own your own company or you work for someone else, that won't matter. What church you went to won't matter. How many times you read through the Bible, how many books you read in your life, none of that will matter. You say, Pastor, what will matter? The only thing that will matter are the treasures you left up in heaven. That's it. That's it. And, and, and the only thing that will matter are the people that you lead to the Lord and that you affect with the eternal difference. We run through the race, the rat race of life, and we're trying to get, 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 and build bank accounts and buy and accrue things and, and, and meet this deadline and meet that deadline. And the truth is, it's not even going to matter. What's going to matter is what we've done for Him. The poet put it this way, only one life, so soon it will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. As wealthy as Solomon was, if it were not for the Bible, you would not know who he was today. Number six, notice Solomon's ponderings. Solomon's ponderings. We finish up uh, the sermon today. And again, we can't cover the whole book. In one day, I was uh, actually the church I just left. The pastor spent a little over a year preaching all the way through Ecclesiastes. And so uh, we're covering it in one week. So we're going to leave a lot uncovered, but we're just trying to hit the highlights here. Let me give you an A through F here uh, as quick as I can uh, about Solomon's ponderings from the book. Again, the wisest man at the end of his life, looking back at the time where he lived with wisdom without godliness and uh, some self-critiques and then also just some tidbits of wisdom. Letter A, notice a lesson about discretion. A lesson about discretion. Turn with me at cha- to chapter 3 and look with me at verse number 1. And this is a, a common passage that's read at funerals. But I think the applications go well on beyond just funerals. Verse 1 there, it says, To everything there is a season, a time, to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. 
a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. What do I draw away from that? Is that we are to live our lives with discretion. Discretion. And to pull a couple of those out, there's a time to laugh, isn't there? I, I love to laugh. I love to get around and joke around and pick on people and have people pick on me and, and go back and forth and, and have fun in that way. I, I, I love when a, a pastor stands up and tells a really funny joke unlike the pastor you have that doesn't tell very funny jokes. I love when uh, people get up and tell funny jokes and, uh, and, and kind of get you laughing and going a little bit. But there's a time where it's inappropriate to laugh, isn't it? There's a time where it's appropriate to weep. You know, when Jesus walked up to Mary and Martha after Lazarus had died, and they were just torn, and Jesus knew Lazarus was going to raise, uh, be risen again, Jesus didn't walk up laughing and jovial. Jesus walked up with a tear in his eye. The Bible tells us that Jesus wept. There's a time to embrace, isn't there? Men, hug your wives. Amen. Hug your wives. I think after church, I'm going to go do that one. Amen. Uh, don't, don't refrain from embracing if you're married. But if you're not married, the Bible tells us it's not good for a man to touch a woman. You, you need to in, refrain from embracing until that, that time is right. What is sin? Sin. What is sin? Sin is right. Sin is right done at the wrong time. It's right done at the wrong time. Think about that. You do the right thing, but you're not doing it at the right time. Sin is right at the wrong place. Sin is right with the wrong person. Sin is right with the wrong motive. Sin is right with the wrong attitude. Sin is right done for the wrong reasons. Sin is right done in the wrong arrangement. Sin is right ignored. And here Solomon is telling us in chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 that there are times for things to be done and we've got to have some discretion with that. Letter B, notice a lesson about the deserted. And some of these are going to come across as just Random thoughts, but again, we're looking at what Solomon gave us in the book. Chapter 4, look there with me, chapter 4 and verse number 1 of Ecclesiastes there. The Bible says, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praised the dead which are already dead, more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which have not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Solomon must have taken a stroll out of his palace and maybe put on a disguise where no one would know who he was and, and left behind the royal caravan and and, and, and went on down to an area where he, uh, where he could just kind of sit and observe. And what did he see? He saw people who were oppressed. And it broke his heart. It broke his heart. And he said of them, I see oppressors 
But I don't see comforters. If there's one thing I've learned in the last 13 months, it's that people are hurting. People are hurting. People feel deserted. People feel lonely. People are carrying a heavy emotional load either for themselves or for a dear loved one and they need a comforter. You say, Pastor, what application can I take from that? Don't be an oppressor. Be a comforter. Be a comforter. The world needs you not to lash out at the unkind, but to look past their unkindness and realize that they're hurt inside. Solomon said here, for these people, it would have been better for them to be dead than alive because they didn't have a comforter. You know what Stratford needs? Shelton needs? Bridgeport needs? It needs people to walk around and be comforters. You take the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you share it with them. Then after you lead them through a profession of faith, you put your arm around them and you encourage them and you're there for them. Letter C, I see a lesson about desire. A lesson about desire. Look with me at chapter 6 and verse number 1. The Bible says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul, of all that he desireth. Yea, uh, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, it is an evil disease. Verse 3, If a man beget an hundred children and live many years so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he uh, have no burial, I say, then an untimely death is better than he. For he cometh in with vanity, and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered uh, with darkness. So there, letter A, I see, or rather, uh, underneath that uh, lesson about desire, I have this scribbled down, quality of life, quality of life. Uh, uh, what is he saying here is that there's evil in the world and that that evil looks to tear down the quality of one's life. And so uh, uh, we've got to have a desire to do things God's way so that we can be given a desire of life. The other thing I see about desire here out of the book of Ecclesiastes is maturity in life. Maturity in life. Look down with me at chapter 7 and verse 1. Those aren't on the screen, but you can just scribble those down there. Uh, quality of life and maturity of life. Chapter 7 and verse 1, a good name is rather to be, uh, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now, I will say this is that I believe that Solomon was writing this through that vexation of spirit. He was so uh, uh, putrefied by his life and the decisions that he made, I think he was looking forward to the grave. And he was saying, the day of one's death is the better than the day of one's life. And i got to say for the Christian that uh, I can't wait for the day where I die and go on to heaven and be with the Lord. I'm not going to go out and take my life tonight or anything, amen? But uh, the day I, uh, what uh, Paul tells us, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And uh, uh, he, uh, here what I see is that as we grow older, 
we ought to grow in our maturity in life. There ought to be some maturity that comes along with that. Let's quick, quickly give you the D, E, and the F here. Letter D, notice a lesson about dialogue. About dialogue. Look at chapter 5 and verse number 2. This is just a good reminder tonight. Be not rash of thy mouth. Let, thine, let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Turn over to chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse number 12. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow him up. The beginning of the words of of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. A fool also is full of words. A man cannot tell what shall be and what shall be after him. Who can tell him? Now, here we see a a contrast of a fool's mouth and someone who is prudent with their mouth. And I'll just say this about dialogue is that you've got to be careful with your lips. How many of you here, let's be honest tonight, how many of you here are a little bit quicker to hear than you are to speak or the any of you that way here you'd rather listen than speak how many how many be honest you talk more than you listen how many be honest about that tonight my hands up i'm quicker to want to share my opinion than to listen to yours and the lord's working in my heart on that and 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 to become a better listener i gotta say i'm a better listener than i was five years ago and ten years ago it is something that he's going to continue working on me until the day i die what did uh what did he advise us in chapter five he said listen when you speak to your god be careful be careful talk to him and remember you're on earth you're down here in this lowly position he's in heaven and so a lesson about dialogue letter e a lesson about direction look at chapter 12 and verse number one. And boy, this really gets down to the heart of the book. Before we read verse one, let me just say, Solomon did not really do the advice he's giving here. At least he didn't hold to it. Verse one, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon here, the whole book, is telling us why he has no pleasure in them. And he's saying, if you don't want to be where I'm that, uh, where I'm at, then remember thy Creator in the days of thy youth. Some of you here are going, my youth is behind me. Well, start remembering your Creator now. Listen, you need to have a relationship with that Creator. And the stronger this relationship is, Boy, I'm telling you, uh, the, the better uh, a quality of life that you'll have. My goal in my life is to get down to the end and not to look back over my life and say, vanity and vexation of spirit, vanity and irritation, vanity and depression, vanity and de- uh, 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 anxiety. My goal is to get to the end of my life and see souls saved and uh, hearts uh, brought closer to God and, and, and people along the way that were helped and say, I remembered my Creator in the days of my youth, and happy are the days of my life. And so, uh, He's given us some direction here. Tonight, some of you need to wake up and make the decision that tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and you're going to pick up your Bible and you're going to read it and you're going to spend time in prayer. Letter F, and lastly, we see a lesson about Christian duty. 
Look down with me at verse number 13. And if you memorize scriptures, boy, I would really encourage you to memorize verse 1 and memorize verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now this brings it all in a circle. What is the duty of man? Fear God, keep His commandments. Fear God and keep His commandments. And we don't have time to dive deep into this, but fearing God is first being afraid that God is going to hurt me. And then it matures into a fear that I'm going to hurt God. First, I'm afraid that God's going to chastise me. Then as I grow in my love for God, it becomes a fear that I'm going to let God down. I'm going to hurt God by letting Him down. The more I love God, the less I want to displease Him. And uh, uh, bringing this full circle back to that mathematical formula we put up at the beginning of the message, wisdom minus godliness equals earthly success. Wisdom plus godliness. Getting that wisdom while you walk with God. And spending time with Him. And, and, and keeping Him in the forefront. Boy, that doesn't just equal earthly success. That equals spiritual success. And my friend, when you're long and gone and totally forgotten, your spiritual success is all that will matter. Let's have the rubber hit the road just for a minute here. You are what you do. You are who your relationships are. You are what your passions are. Let me ask you a question tonight, Christian, as we close it down. Are you trying to gain the wisdom and godliness? Is your motive in mind eternal? Or are your motives in mind temporal? I know that one day when we get to heaven, we're all going to wish they'd been a little bit more eternal than they are now. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Wisdom. And godliness. It's your Christian duty.